Let's go to prayer here. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for just the opportunity to gather together to worship you, to um, fellowship, encourage one another, as it says, day, day after day, as long as it is still called today. We need that interaction. We need, uh, like it says in the Word, to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. And so, Lord, we're thankful for that. We're thankful to be able to come together for that. We're also um, Lord, just thankful that we can come together to hear your Word, to hear your will for our lives. And, Lord, we want to take the time, too, just collectively as a church body to pray and lift up those who are ill, those who have... Uh, are physically just in need of your healing touch, whether they be here in our church family or family members. As I've seen prayer requests go out this week, we just pray, God, you touch their their bodies, heal them, restore their health. And uh, Lord, we um, also just pray for anyone that's listening today, who's here today, who uh, just might um, need your strength. They're, they're really maybe growing weary in their walk, we just pray, Lord, that you would, like it says there in Isaiah, just uh, um, you would give them new strength, and uh, they that wait upon the Lord will renew their strength and mount up with wings like eagles. And so, Lord, we just pray, Lord, that you would would renew their strength. And uh, Lord, we just I pray that you would help me, uh, that you would fill me, use me today for your glory in Jesus' name, Amen. All right, so we're in the book of 2 Peter. Uh, we've got, man, we've got so much today, we may have to order lunch. No, I mean, we're going keep it, to keep it to time, Lord willing. But, we're, but if there's a lot of good stuff just in these uh, verses that we're looking at this morning. And so, uh, you know, we're in this series here. I get my clicker working here. Somebody want to try to unstick me? <laughs> Thank you. All right. Very good. So the, this series, you know, which is called Growing in the, the Grace and Knowledge of Our Savior, which is really kind of a, uh, a verse pulled right out of, or part of a verse pulled right out of 2 Peter 3.18. Um, and that's what we are see as the purpose of this letter. And what you're going to see here, and um, we'll, we'll read this passage aloud together, that uh, Paul's starting to head towards uh, hitting on a particular issue that they're facing, which is some false teaching that was being done at that time. And uh, so we're going we're gonna to start learning what that is and then learning how, what's the best defense against that. So if you're able, why don't you stand up uh, for the reading of the Word of God? This is a habit that we have as a church um, we just stand in honor of the Word of God. And so uh, let's read it aloud together, if you're able here. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able to at any time to recall these things. For we do not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. 
For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in our hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is God's Word. Please have a seat. Now, uh, I just want to draw your attention, if you have a Bible there with you or a device and you want to go to, um, I'm just going to point out a couple verses that I do not have up here from Second Peter, um, looking at some of the issues that uh, Peter is addressing to this church about the false teachings. So I want to talk a little bit about the false teachers. Now, we're going to be all of chapter 2 and a good part of chapter 3 is combating these false teachings. But I just want to highlight a couple of verses to you see maybe why he's had such been harping on godliness and pursuing godliness. Second um, Peter chapter two, verse one says, "But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there were false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, bringing up upon themselves swift destruction." And many will follow their, now listen, their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. So, um, these false teachers, one of the characteristics of them was that they didn't really feel like, you know, you got the full freedom to live however you want, uh, particularly, particularly in the area of sex and sensuality. Um, and so... Could you not see then maybe why Peter is starting off with saying, you know what, our behavior matters. Pursuing godliness matters. It actually reflects on your, um, your true relationship with Christ. Um, so we, we've spent our first few weeks in Second Peter talking about pursuing godliness. And so now we see why this was such an important thing. And then... As uh, you go on, if you look in chapter 3 of Second Peter, it says, This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. Verse 4 says, they will say, here's what they're going to say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. They're like, Jesus is not coming back. What are you guys waiting on? It's been this way ever since the beginning. So if you have no fear of his return, why would you care how you behave? Does this make sense? So I think he's really just, He's dialing in on the issue here, um, and we'll, we'll certainly spend a lot of time in those chapters to come. But I just wanted you to see why this pursuit of godliness uh, is such a big deal. And we'll spend a good bit of time today um, 
talking about just, and he has one of these verses that we read earlier, talking about uh, the day of the Lord, right? And how that really is uh, a motivation for godly living. If you know you're going to have to give an account someday for how you lived your life, uh, you know, this is something that is going to, you know, uh, get you to think twice about how you're living. In fact, in chapter 3 of 2 Peter, so 2 Peter 3.11, he says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, actually he's talking about the, you know, the heavens as we know it will be burned up and we'll have a new heavens and new earth. So he's saying, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Again, just trying to connect the dots for us here. What's going on in this letter? He's saying, listen, in light of the return of Christ, our lives ought to look like a Christ-like life as followers of Jesus. So he's laying that out. All right, so let me just give you our outline this morning here. Uh, just for, And we're going to hit each one of these points. So don't, if you're taking notes, don't worry about furiously getting all three. We'll get to all three. But the reason for the urgency and reminders and then the best defense for the second coming, we'll hit two points of that. Eyewitness testimony and cooperating authoritative evidence. It's like a court of law here. We're going to say, you know, um, you know uh, and we'll, we'll get to the, the verse that I want to kind of spill the beans. But, but basically, he, he's giving us some evidence why we should believe in the second coming and, and why we should doubt the false teachers who say, it's not going to happen. People have been waiting this, for this forever. You know, um, so uh, so this is the where we're headed. Okay, so let's get on to the first point: the reason for the urgency and reminders. Okay, well, uh, I've said quite a few words since we read these verses, so let's take a quick look back at this. Uh, what did he say at the very beginning of our section today? Second Peter chapter one twelve. It says, "Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. What qualities? The qualities he mentioned before." right? Godliness and, and all those qualities that he mentioned, right? He says, I intend to always remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. So it's almost like he's saying, now I know you guys are doing well even in these things, but you need to be reminded that godliness and the pursuit of it is important, okay? He says, I think it is right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon. What do you suppose he means by that? He knows he's going to die, right? The putting off of the body. Now, by the way, he's, uh, some people buy into the heresy then that, you know, the body's bad because he's saying the putting off. No, he's not saying that, okay? He's, he's going to get another one. He has, his other one's going to be revived and, you know, uh, glorified, right? So, uh, but he is saying... I want to remind you of these things. These are important because I'm going to die. Yeah, it's almost like a last will and testament statement here a little bit. He's saying this is important stuff, right? He says, and I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Well, here we are, you know, a while after that, by God's grace, being reminded of these things. And we have Peter and ultimately God, to thank for that, okay? So, so he's just saying, I'm, you know, by repetition and reminder, I'm just going to try to burn that into your brain 
why this is important, and uh, that you may be able to uh, also sniff out these false teachers. Okay, so the reason for the urgency and the reminder is that Peter knew he was going to die. Now, this is something I had forgotten about, that Jesus seemed to tell Peter the manner in which he would die. Uh, Did you know that? I've forgotten about this. Um, In John 21, the Gospel of John 21, verse 18 and 19, let's take a look. He says, truly, truly, Jesus says, I say to you, when, uh, speaking to Peter, okay, here, he says, uh, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Okay, uh, and so many people believe, and it kind of makes sense that, you know, the stretching out of your hands would be a crucifixion. Okay, um, now, in some manuscripts, the first part of verse 19 is not there. It says, this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. So, even without, even without the little insertion there that some manuscripts don't have, um, you know, uh, and even tradition has it that Peter was crucified upside down. We don't know that for sure, but it does seem like uh, the stretching out of the hands, Jesus is saying, this is the way you're going to die, okay? And somehow, somehow the Lord let him know his time is coming near. We don't know how. We don't know if it was some kind of a vision he had. We have no idea, some impression in his spirit, um, you know, he, 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 he was martyred during the time of Nero, when Nero was in power. Uh, and so, um, maybe he just knew things were heating up, you know. But there we have kind of the reason, the why he's reminding them of these things. Now, let's kind of get into the core of the passage today, where he's talking about um, the, the, the making a defense for the second coming, all right? Uh, those verses 16 to 18. And here he talks about eyewitness testimony. Let's look at this. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Then he says, For we have, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. He says, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Somebody know what situation or um, historical thing was happening that he's referring to? It's called the transfiguration. Uh, Okay, and we're going to read that short passage here in just a minute in Mark chapter 9. It's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. This uh, of the transfiguration of Jesus. So, so this idea that he says we were with him, but you know, got to get the thrust of it is he's saying we are eyewitnesses of what we're proclaiming to you, and we are eyewitnesses of specifically the transfiguration of Jesus. And when you read over this a couple times, you're like, well, so what's the big deal about the transfiguration, and what does that have to do with the second coming? That was like. Because if you're trying to draw a straight line, Peter, I missed it. Like, where is it going? Okay, he's not trying to be aloof. It's just that we need to do a little homework here, okay? We need to go read about the transfiguration. 
So let's take a look in Mark chapter 9, verse 1. So this, verse 1, okay, he was, he's with a group of disciples. And then starting at verse 2, we'll see the transition to the transfiguration. But we've got to get verse 1, though. So, uh, Mark chapter 9, verse 1 says, He said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here, whoever was around him at the time, some standing here, who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Okay, well, guess what they're going to see next? They're going to see uh, Jesus clothed with power. Okay, that's what happens in verse 2. And he says, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as uh, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared uh, to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Right, wouldn't you like to be around for that conversation? What were they talking about? Right, well, we don't know. But the thing is, the focus is on Jesus and that he's transfigured in that they're really getting to see him in all, his glory. And all he's clothed with power and majesty. And they're getting to see that, right? These three. You know, and this is the way, and, and, I, and, and let me just keep going here. It says, uh, uh, verse 5, And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it, it is good that we are here. <laughs> Duh. You know, I'm thinking like, woo Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And uh, he says, for he did not know what to say. They, for they were terrified. It's like, you know, this is not something you see every day. <laughs> the Son of Man, clothed in all power and glory, right? Uh, they're not seeing that. Uh, so he kind of wants to mark the moment kind of, right? Uh, And he says, and a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, this is my son, listen to him. So you got affirmation of God the Father here, right? And I'm just thinking of, you know, this is my opinion here, the cloud, right? Think about the temple, right? Wasn't there a cloud that just filled that temple when the glory of the Lord came down? This is you have. This is the majestic power that is spoken of in Second Peter. The majestic glory of God, I think, is coming down there to be with them in a way that it's not until His kingdom comes. This is why I think, uh, and scholars would agree with me, and I'm not a scholar, but they would agree and say, "Listen, this transfiguration is more than just an affirmation of God that this is my Son. They're getting a foretaste of what Jesus' second coming." will look like, what he'll be like. They're getting a foretaste of this, okay? And then it says in verse 8, and suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Okay, so trying to just uh, explain here uh, why, why the transfiguration? Why is Peter saying to uh, his audience, the, the believers who are reading this letter, why is it saying, we saw him, we were eyewitnesses, we did not make this up? Well, so in the Greco-Roman culture, they were all about mythology, weren't they? <laughs> right? Hercules, you know, all these, these, you know, these, these people didn't exist, these weren't really gods, they, they made them up, right? Many times to kind of like, maybe even make stories to kind of with a point, right? 
Uh, Peter's saying, uh, no, we're not, this is not one of those myths here. <laughs> this stuff is real. The majestic power and glory of our Lord is real. And we will experience that in its fullness at his coming. All right. And those who are right with God and put their faith in Christ will welcome that coming. And those who reject him will not. Okay. And so, so he's saying, uh, you should believe us when you, we tell you uh, that the second coming is a real deal and it's going to happen because we got a taste of that back at the transfiguration. We were eyewitnesses. Okay? So he's just, you know, if you're going to make a case, certainly saying that you were an eyewitness when you were is going to strengthen your case, right? Um, I thought this was interesting just to mention. So in the ESV study Bible, it has some notes about Mark 9.1, which just kind of emphasizes what I was mentioning earlier. It says, some standing here, it mentions the comment, some standing here who will, will not taste death probably points toward the three disciples who will accompany Jesus to the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, to see the coming of the kingdom of God with power refers to an anticipation of the future event in the Transfiguration. And so it's again just just to say, you know, I'm I'm not. Uh, uh, you know, there's plenty of people that see this connection here, all right, and why he's saying that. Now I want to spend the remainder of my time talking about a very important, very important piece of belief or doctrine that we have as believers that's brought up in verses 19 to 21. Okay, so. He mentions why he's reminding them of these things, and right in verses uh, uh, 12 to 15, and now 16 to 18, he's simply saying we have been eyewitnesses of these things, and you need to believe that the second coming is real. Uh, and then, so that's the one piece of evidence. Now he's going to say, listen, we have corroborating authoritative evidence that the second coming is going to happen. Okay? So let's take a look at verses uh, 19 to 21 about this cooperating authoritative evidence. Just to remind you of what those verses say, it says, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as a, to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. These are very important verses. I mean, all verses are God's Word, okay? But uh, this is telling us a number of things, and I'll, I'll get to that in a second, but I want to kind of explain a couple of words that are used here. Back in verse 19, it says, and we have the prophetic word, right? Some people think that that prophetic word, because the Greek, the Greek word that's used just, it has to do with graphe, which is just writings, just means all of Scripture, all Scripture, right? In, in a sense, is the, you know, the law and the prophets at that time, they would have, would have been all the Scripture, right, that they had. Written And then some letters would have been written that were written by Paul. Um, now, so if the, you take it to be that way, that 
prophetic word is all scripture. He's just simply saying uh, that, hey, all of, we, we can make, uh, if you, if, in other words, if the, if the eyewitness account's not enough for you, okay, we have something uh, even more objective than that, and that is the word of God, all right? That's what he says when he says, it's, it's not the word of God that's more fully confirmed, okay? It's the fact of their eyewitness testimony and all that they believe and all that Jesus taught is confirmed by Scripture, okay? Uh, so the prophetic word. Now, even if that prophetic word, if he was talking about just prophecy, you know, just uh, Scripture that's prophecy, we have 2 Timothy 3.16 as one of our verses that really explains that the, all of Scripture is inspired, is inspired by God, right? Let's take a look at that. I don't have it up on the screen here. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture. So you got that all word. It's, it's kind of like all-encompassing, right? All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Uh, you, don't you get the sense that the Word of God is just useful for anything, Right? Uh, he's saying, so, so, so whether you take this prophetic, uh, the, the prophetic word in this verse in 2 Peter to be just prophecy itself, um, we have other scriptures that tell us all scripture is inspired by God, okay? Comes from him. All right, so let's go on here to um, several things that we can learn from these verses that talk about that. You know, in verse 20, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from one's own interpretation, right? And that pro no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. So you get, this, you get the definite sense that he's saying the, the Word of God is not coming from men, ultimately. It's coming from God, right? So three things we want to hit on here. First is, Clearly that the Bible is, is, capital is, the Word of God, okay? Why do I emphasize uh, capital is? Well, that's because some people, um, and you have to be careful. You got to really want to listen to people's words when they're talking about how they view the Bible, okay? As to whether it's, uh, it's um, scriptural view of Scripture or not, okay? Okay. Uh, because some people say, well, the Bible contains the Word of God. Well, why is that problematic? Well, because then you're implying that this is, some of it is and some of it isn't, right? Uh, some people, um, and I, I, I'll never remember, forget this, back at Brown Elementary, 27, 8 years ago, somebody came up to me, was a student from Capital University, I think it was, and said... Um, it doesn't matter really where they were. I just happen to remember that. Why I remember that, I have no idea because I cannot remember many other things that just happened. Okay, but they said, I've been learning in the classroom about demythologizing the Bible. I'm like, oh, yeah, we need to talk. You know, and we did talk. And I just told them how, you know, so basically what does it mean to demythologize the Bible? They would say, well, you know that whole, let me give you examples. There was nobody swallowed by a fish. Okay, the point of that story is, and then they would tell you what they think the point of the story was. Uh, you know, there was no, 
five loaves and two fish miracle. It was just, it was about sharing, you know, or, you know, so kind of like, uh, or, or, you know, there was no real Adam and Eve. The point there is that we all mess up. Okay, I'm, not, I'm, making, I'm making this up. This is real, okay? And so <laughs> the Bible itself uh, is claiming that it is the Word of God, not that it contains the Word of God or that it's kind of myth with stories with a point in it. Now, now Jesus tells stories with a point. He calls those parables, right? Okay? Um, but it's important for us to see that our faith is actually anchored in history, things that actually happen, right? So, uh, so the Bible is the Word of God, doesn't just contain the Word of God. It does not become the Word of God when we read it. Some people believe that. Like it actually somehow becomes the Word of God when we read it. Or it becomes the Word of God when we experience it. No, the inspiration happened already, okay? It already is the Word of God. You know, whether, you, whether you have a quiver in your liver when it's read doesn't have any impact or not on whether it's the Word of God, okay? That's what he's saying. I mean, he's saying it is the Word of God, right? Um, and so this is important. The authority lies in the Scripture text itself, okay? All right, so that's the first thing, right? And we, we get that uh, there when he's saying, you know, no... Um, before I misquote it, let me get back there. Yeah, knowing that, first of all, verse 20, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, right? For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God. All right? Let me explain something, too, about... Well, I guess I'll get to that on the third point. I'm just so excited to get to all these points here. Uh, because this is, this is a big deal, okay? Coming down on the right side of this is important, okay? Understanding uh, the place that the Bible has, the Scripture has in our life is key. Because if you think it's just a, a lot of nice stories, then you're certainly not going to uh, try to align your life with everything in it. You'll align yourself with the things that you like and then disalign yourself with the things that you don't like. Right, rather than treating it for, for what it is. Okay? I mentioned the Second Timothy three sixteen already. I'll just go by that. The second thing, important things about the Bible, there's many, but the second thing is the Bible alone has supreme final authority. The Bible alone, capital alone. Okay? Um, now, what do we mean by that? Um, no one, no person and nothing else supersedes Scripture's authority. Not a person. No person overrides the Bible. Okay? And no other thing um, overrides what the Scripture is saying. It has final authority. Um, so a lot of people bring up uh, conflicting views between like science and the Bible when you talk about this point. Now, we don't have all day here. Books have been written on this topic, but let me just say this. Scripture, rightly understood. Uh, I'm carefully wording everything here. Scripture, rightly understood, will not contradict 
science, or some other kind of truth rightly understood. Okay? I believe that statement. Okay? In other words, I can misunderstand what the Scripture is saying and it conflict with something that's true, else that's true. Okay? Or I can completely understand the Bible and it's conflicting with science, but science hasn't caught up with God yet. That can happen too. Okay? You see what I'm saying? Um, but Scripture uh, is the final authority, right? So if something else is conflicting, on script, something that Scripture has spoken about, the Scripture has the final authority. Whatever else is being said must be misunderstood or just flat out a lie. Okay? Uh, so that's what it means, that the Bible alone is the supreme final authority. All right. Here, if we believe it, it, we're saying it is what? The Word of God, right? <laughs> uh, not just words on a page, it's the Word of God. Uh, uh, God has said these things, right? And so you're, if, you're, if you're basically saying He's wrong, then you're better than God. That's what you're saying. I mean, you know, just take that to its logical conclusion. Um, all right, lastly. The Bible is without error. Okay, the Bible is without error. Now, uh, let's talk a little bit about um, transmission, how we got the Bible, just a little bit, just for a minute here, because um, The verse that we read there in 2 Peter chapter 20 or 21, let's look at 21, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. All right, so some people, I think, erroneously believe that um, it was some form of mechanical dictation that there was an audible voice and God was having them write everything down, okay? Now, you can find portions of Scripture, uh, like maybe Daniel or something, where he says, you know, write this down, okay? That's fine. But I'm just saying, you know, God was not whispering in Paul's ear every word, like, okay, get this now. You're like, like a dictation, like, you know, if I were to dictate an Andrew, a letter to Andrea, I'm telling her every word first, and she writes it down. That's not... That's not how the Bible came to be, okay? How do we know that? Well, what does that verse say? It says, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We have these people, God using their writing styles, using the time that they were living, their culture, right? Um, Everything about them was coming out in their writing. And yet at the same time, everything they wrote was exactly as God would want it to be. That makes sense? That's different from dictation. Some people call that, I didn't know all some of these fancy words. I knew about the dictation, but I didn't know about this one called concurrent. Uh, the idea of two things happening at once. Well, I mean, I know about that idea, but, but, but I, although I don't multitask well, so anyway. But concurrent things, like God could be, the Holy Spirit working in them, 
along with their own personality. That's two concurrent things. Yes, men wrote them down, but as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. But I think that's different from dictation. Okay? I think that's different. But, it, but, it, but why are we saying this? We're saying the Bible is without error, even though it was transmitted by men, written down by men. Right? Because the author behind them really is the Holy Spirit. Okay? And God doesn't make mistakes. Okay? He doesn't make mistakes. So this is important. Now, there may be difficult portions of Scripture to understand. Okay, in fact, doesn't doesn't even say that. Oh, yeah, love this. Uh, 2 Peter 3, 16. Uh, (laughs) Go back to 15. Uh, So here he's closing the letter. 2 Peter 3 says, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. So now he's talking about Paul's writings. Listen to what Peter says about Paul's writings. As he does in all his letters, when he speaks in them of these matters, he says, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. Yeah, I mean, you know. Okay, this is, to me, just authenticates the whole thing anyway. I mean, who would ever say that if they were making this up, you know? Who would ever, you know, so he's just saying, well, you know, yes, so there are some difficult passages. There are some difficulties, okay? But it doesn't mean there has to be any errors, okay? Okay? So these are the things that uh, we believe, you know, that the Bible is the Word of God. The Bible alone is the supreme final authority in our life, and the Bible is without error. And he's holding that up, basically, uh, through these few verses in 19 to 21, saying, listen, uh, even if you doubt our firsthand account, which you shouldn't, but, you know, the Word of God, the prophetic Word of God, right, is saying it's going to happen. The second coming is coming. You need to live your lives accordingly, right? And so he's, he's making his case is what he's doing. I want to read something to you, um, something J.I. Packer wrote, and then we're, then we're just going to end in prayer here, um, about this idea of the... So the Bible without error, that's called inerrancy, okay? Inerrancy is what it's called. We believe that, okay? Um, some things that J.I. Packer, who is a theologian, he's gone to be with the Lord now, he's written a number of books. Um, some of the things he said, I think, are very interesting about this idea He says, once I too avoided the word inerrancy as much as I could, partly because I had no wish myself to endorse the tendencies mentioned, and partly because the word has a negative form and I like to sound positive. But I find that nowadays I need the word. Verbal currency, as we we known, can be devalued, and any word may have some of its meaning rubbed off. And this has happened to all my preferred terms for stating my belief about the Bible. I hear folk declare Scripture inspired and in the next breath say that it misleads from time to time. I hear them call it infallible 
and authoritative and find they mean only that it is its impact on us and the commitment to which it leads us will keep us in God's grace. Not that it is all true. He says, that is not enough for me. I want to safeguard the historic evangelical meaning of these three words and to make clear my intention as a disciple of Jesus Christ to receive as from the Father and the Son all that the Scripture, when properly interpreted, that is, understood from within in terms of its own frame of reference, proves to be affirming. So he's just saying, you know, so even when you talk about, this is why you, got, you have to talk, you, can't, you have to define your terms. When you're talking with somebody and they say believe in inerrancy, you've got to talk about what they mean. That's kind of what he just said. He said, some people, they say they believe in inerrancy, and then the next thing say that they think that there's some things that are wrong. Okay? You have to define your terms. That's true almost in anything now. Okay? Um, now, the last thing I want to mention uh, of what, of what uh, J.I. Packer mentioned on this topic of inerrancy, he says... Um, he says, any degree of skepticism about the portrait of Christ, the promises of God, the principles of godliness, and the power of the Holy Spirit as biblically presented has the effect of enslaving us to our, to our own alternative ideas about these things. And thus we miss something of the freedom, joy, and vitality that the real Christ bestows. Okay, now I don't want you to miss this. There's some important thoughts there. I think. He's saying, listen, if you, if you don't hold to the inerrancy of Scripture, you'll be enslaved by your own ideas. You're not really free unless you're really, well, the Bible uses the words, a slave of Christ, because it's one or the other. You, you know, and it's not just a saying, you will serve someone, okay? And so Packer's saying, uh, there's freedom in putting yourself under the authority of Scripture. And that sounds counterintuitive to people. But the alternative is to be enslaved by your own self and false ideas. He says, God is very patient and merciful, and I do not suspect or suggest that those who fall short here thereby forfeit all knowledge of Christ, though I recognize that one sits for, one sits, can I read this please? One sits loose, anyone who sits loose to Scripture Thus, uh, this may indeed happen. In other words, he's saying, I'm not saying if someone's off a little bit on this particular thing, would they, would they have forfeited their faith? But he says, you're, you're, if you sit loosely with the Scripture, you may have been. In other words, again, just to quote myself again, you don't want to be in that place. You've got, you got to settle this, right? He says, but I do maintain most emphatically that one cannot doubt the Bible without far-reaching loss, both the fullness of truth and the fullness of life. If therefore... We have at heart spiritual renewal for society, for churches, for our own lives. We shall, we, we, must, we shall make much of the entire trustworthiness, that is, the inerrancy of Holy Scripture as the inspired and liberating Word of God. Um, just, he, he's just saying there's a lot that hangs on this. Okay, There's a lot that hangs on this. He's not just saying we're going to lose hold of something we've held dear. No, this is true. And losing, letting loose of this truth has impact on societies and churches and everything. Okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for um, the Bible. And we know it's your word. 
we, we teach it that way, we believe it that way, we, we know we fall short of living according to all that is written in it, but we certainly, by your grace, strive to do so by the power of your Spirit. Thank you that our shortcomings are covered by the blood. All is of grace, we know, through Christ, when we have him as our Savior. And so, Lord, we just pray that you'd help us, God, to be ones who are students of the Scriptures and ones who have the proper view that the Bible alone has final authority and the Bible is the Word of God and, and the Bible is without error. God, help us to hang on to those uh, when so many uh, wish us to uh, allow for it to not be. And so, Lord, we need your help. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.